Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. On this second Sunday of Advent, we turn with anticipation to the forerunner of the Messiah. As the king approaches, the call to make ready goes forth. Anticipation builds, and we look with eager anticipation to make the way ready for the king. The people of Israel knew that the great prophet Elijah would come again and would instruct the people to return to the Lord, to make their hearts, their homes, and their lands ready to welcome the king. The priest Zechariah, father to John the Baptist, sang his, sang his joy for John's birth. His words in Luke 1, 76 through 79, swell our hearts with anticipation. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We light this candle with assurance that a light has come into the darkness. Let us pray. Good morning. We've got EGC and Elevate. Do we have Elevate? Do we have both? We have EGC and Elevate? Both? Yes, EGC and Elevate. You're dismissed. Everybody else, it's been a while since we've done it, and y'all, it's, it's Christmas slash Advent season, so why don't you stand up and greet each other? Greet those around you. Welcome. Welcome, everybody. Say howdy. No, it's okay. You really, you can stand up and you can be like, hi, how's it going? You don't have to. You don't have to, though. You don't have to. It's okay. It's all right. Good morning from here. Can I, can I hold the baby? Can I preach while I hold the baby? I, can't, I don't think I can preach while I hold the baby. I would, I would try.
let's not get carried away. So, two things. One, I am dealing with the symptoms of the cold that would never end. I'm not actively sick, but it's just like the left, you know, leftover stuff. So if I subconsciously or unconsciously roll back snot, and that's going to nauseate you, I'm just going to warn you right now, you might want to just be on guard for that. Um, and so I'll try not to do that. But if I do it, just know. I'm not trying to gross you out. Uh, the other thing is, the last couple times I've had the task of preaching, I was aiming for like 25 or 30 minutes at the most. And for those of you that were here, <laughs> uh, I, it went long, a little bit longer than that. So this morning, I'm aiming for like 14, 15 minutes. We'll see if the logic holds up, right? It's, it's, about, it's about a two to one. So anyway, um, we're going to keep it hopefully relatively simple this morning. The series we're launching into is Waiting for God. That's what we'll be looking at this Advent. We're going to look this week and the next two weeks at uh, people that are highlighted in Luke's gospel that normally... To be honest, when it gets to be Christmas time, we just kind of read past these sections really quick because we want to get to the baby Jesus stuff and like the nativity and all that, um, which is, you know, it's good, it's fine. But uh, to pass these stories over of these individuals that get highlighted in the gospel, especially in the gospel of Luke, would be sad and a mistake. It's, it's something we do on a pretty regular basis. But we want to take time the next few weeks and focus on some of these folks and hear their stories and uh, think and uh, feel our way into praying or into waiting for God. So this morning our goal is we're going to uh, read the story really quickly uh, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 1 verses 5 through 25. I'm going to read it. We're going to uh, look at the context a bit and then all of that is going to lead us to ask one question, just one. Pay attention for the one question. See if you can figure out what the one question is going to be by the time we get there. And we'll answer the one question, hopefully pull some application out of it, and then you get to go home. So, there you go. All right, so let's read this together. In the day, and I don't mean you have to read out loud, sorry, that's misleading. It's not underlined, so you guys know, right? That's, you don't have to read it out loud. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God walking blamelessly in all the commands and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell on him, yeah. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of, the, of Israel to the, to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord the people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him and said, I am Gabriel. 
I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news, and behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he realized, or he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me, to take away my reproach among people. All right, so this, again, it's just one of those stories we kind of go past. And a cursory reading of this, did, every, did you guys pay attention or did I already put you to sleep? I know how it goes. I'm going to try to, like, modulate here and and not be this all day long. So, did you guys like pay attention and stuff? Or was it good? Was it totally good? Um, so, we can, we can fly by this story really quickly, and we can throw this into the Christmas category really fast, because this is, this is, how, I, this is how I Christmasized this story. I say, uh, in my head, okay, moral of the story, let's just sum it up so we can get to baby Jesus. Elizabeth and Zechariah were old. They were good for a really long time. They were patient. And ultimately, God gave them the thing that they wanted. Happy, they got their Christmas present on Christmas morning. Happy ending, yay for everybody, right? You guys seen the Christmas story? Not the new one, the original, the OG Christmas story. Yes? Okay. Um, if you look at pictures of me as a kid at that age, that's about what I look like, that, that Ralphie kid. So I got, I got that a lot. I, and I didn't see it, I, like, I didn't have any recollection of seeing it for a really long time, but this is the whole moral of the story. It's the misadventures of Ralphie and his brother while they wait for Ralphie's whole heart, his whole desire is based on this, does any, did you guys know the thing that he was looking, what was the thing that he was looking, waiting for? Red Rider BB gun. Does anybody know the full description of the Red Rider BB gun? I don't, I was just, I, I know there was a compass in the stock, I know it was like blue steel something, carbide action, whatever that means, I don't, is that, does all of these things sound right? I don't, if somebody knows it, like really, no, okay. So the dude wanted a BB gun, and the whole movie, and it was at the end of the movie, he, he gets, the, it's beautiful, he gets the BB gun, it's a, it's a tearjerker, for me anyway, because uh, it's like looking in the mirror as a child. So, <clears throat> this isn't that. Um, I think there's something else going on here. So, normally when we get dropped into a Bible story, especially in, well, anywhere in the Bible, but in the New Testament, it happens just as easily as in the Old Testament. There's a, it's like walking into the middle of a play, right? Have you ever walked, have you ever walked in a room into the middle of a movie and you don't quite understand what's going on, but you're trying to figure it out, or you walk into a play and you don't quite, like the scenery doesn't make sense, or you don't understand the context. This is, we've been thrown into the deep end of the pool of this whole world that exists. And we don't, if we don't understand the context, we don't understand the characters, we don't understand what's going on, it's gonna be really hard to even ask good questions, let alone the one good question. So, some context. This is a story about the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel was a people that the one creator God of the universe called out to himself to be a fountain of goodness and blessing to the world. He made a covenant with their ancestor, Abraham, made promises that he was going to keep and that he was going to make this one guy and his family, the family that would grow into a great nation, and they would be 
they would be God's fountainhead of beauty and goodness and truth and blessing to the whole world. And that was their call. That was the mission for the family of Abraham. And so God develops this relationship and makes these covenants with these people, makes promises and calls them to love him and serve him. And we've looked at that. We've been looking at that for weeks at this point, looking at the Old Testament, looking at the laws. Um, we haven't looked too much at the temple and the whole situation, but that's where we find ourselves now. We find ourselves at the hot spot of God's presence, and this, is, this was the temple, formerly like a tent that the children of Israel took around with them. But when they settled into the land, they made a temple, a very large, very impressive, very beautiful temple. And this was the place where God met with his people. This was the special place that contained the special presence of God. And so there were a family in the, fa in the family of Abraham. One branch of the descendants were priests, and they were the, the children of Aaron. So this, this long bloodline would consist of people who are going to be priests and serve God in a very special way and have a special role in this larger national family of people. It was going to eventually encompass more and more and more. And so that's, that's the stage. That's where we're at. We're, we're at, the, at the temple grounds. Um, and the, where's the nation of Israel at right now? The nation of Israel is not far, far, far from being the promised fountainhead of blessing and goodness and beauty and truth in the world. God's people exalted. Basically, they were at, way over here. About as far away from that as you could get in the moment. They, they still had the temple but they were fighting to maintain their identity and they were ruled by the Roman Empire. You guys know about, have you guys heard about the Roman Empire? I don't know if you guys know about that. A lot of movies about it, so you can look it up. But uh, to, be, to be ruled by the Roman Empire meant that they were constantly under pressure to assimilate into Roman culture ideologies. And the Jewish people, the, the faithful few that were trying to maintain the uniqueness of their heritage and of their calling as a people to be this nation of blessing to the world, to be God's people on the earth. We're trying hard to hold back the tide of, of the Roman culture and influence that was coming in, and, and it was very difficult. And what had been long promised was that there would be, because they, the failures go all the way back to the beginning, all the way back to creation. The creator God sets the first people in motion, Adam and Eve, and they forfeit the blessing that God had given them, and they were deceived by this serpent figure. And so, long, long, long foretold has been a figure, a human figure, a person who is going to come through this family line, who is going to rise up, vanquish evil, save his people, and restore them back to this place where God had intended them to be. And so, a long series of prophets had come to give messages, to give rebukes, to call them to good, to, to call them away from evil. And the, the voices of these prophets had stopped. When we land in this story in Luke, this, this, this room we get dropped in with the stage set and characters moving, where we get dropped is in the middle of a situation where God has not sent a prophet in 400 years. And they're ruled by the Roman Empire. And they're fighting for the last scraps of their identity. And every level of their, have you ever seen the, the Batman movie, what's the Batman Begins, where like Bruce Wayne's fighting for good and all that stuff and the bad guy's like, this city's so corrupt we've infiltrated every level of its government, like all the way up to the top. That's, that's how the, the children of Israel, the faithful children of Israel felt and saw what they saw happening in their own community. Every level of their government, every level of their structure was infiltrated by corruption. And so that included 
not just the king, who was a puppet king, but it included their religious leaders. All of these influences had come in and wielded power and dangled shiny things, and people fell prey to it. And so it was really, it was a dark time. If you were, if you were one of God's faithful people in the house of Israel, in the city of Jerusalem, who was devoted to this place of God's special presence, and there were quite a few, it felt like a really dark times. And it felt really hopeless. And it felt like there was not going to be a future for your people. Because it was like the tide was coming, or maybe quicksand or something, but that, that sense of impending doom was closing in, and it kept creeping in closer and closer and closer. And the idea of a future and a hope for them was far, far off. It was a dream that they, they didn't even dare to dream. But they still had these promises passed down, and so there were a few that were still looking. We're going to see in the next couple of weeks even more people who were keeping an eye out for God's Savior to come and, and change things and to bring life and to bring renewal. That's, that's where we're at. That's the stage. The couple that we're dealing with right now, Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are, um, Zechariah is a priest. Um, Elizabeth is one of, described as one of the daughters of Aaron. Both of these folks would have been priestly pedigrees. They would have had um, a lot of privilege, a lot of access to education. They would have had a lot of access to um, all of the ceremonies and, and all of the rites of the temple, and they would have been very involved. And there were, in the family of priests, there were probably like, I don't know, like about 20,000 or so, maybe that's an estimate of how many different individuals there were in the priestly family that, were, that had duties and responsibilities at the temple. And Zechariah, it tells what order he's a part of because the order is cycled through. So if you've got that many people and there's not that many jobs at the temple, you've got to cycle them out. So each, each division only got to serve a couple of weeks out of the year. And their jobs varied. What they got to do, it, it varied from time to time. And so, but Zechariah and Elizabeth were, the scripture describes, describes them as, as righteous before God, as being upright, keeping his commands and his statutes. And righteousness before God, even back to the very beginning, Paul will echo it again in Romans, but righteousness is always about the posture of the heart and the activity that flows from it. It's not just, so it's a matter of faith and activity, not just a matter of doing all the right things, right? We've talked at length about that. So you got Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are righteous before God. They love the Lord. They're at the temple. They're working hard, and their life goes on, and their life goes on, and they don't have a child. Now, I, I don't know if you know this about uh, Jewish culture in this time, but because uh, childbearing was seen as a core function of humanity in this time to not be able to produce, to reproduce in your family was seen as essentially, at the bare minimum, it was that you were unfavored by God. That God, it, it was essentially God's judgment that your bloodline, you two right here, no more. We're not, we're not, gonna, we're not gonna keep going with this line. Thank you, we're not gonna pick up your option. This, this is for them to bear this, this idea of not being able to reproduce. First of all, all the way back in the garden, the promise was that the seed of the woman was going to be the one to crush the head of the serpent. And so the Jewish family carried that, the family of Abraham carried that promise all the way down through the generations. And the hope of the Messiah wasn't that he was going to drop from heaven. The hope of the Messiah was that he was going to be born into a righteous family 
or a royal family and that he was going to rise up and he was going to grow. So they, they knew that the child was, it was going to be a baby born. And so a family that couldn't reproduce, not only were you seen as unfavored and possibly being judged by God, but you were also excluded from the generational promises that were to come. Like the, the idea that the Messiah could ever come through your line, no. It's a dead end for you. And so for Zechariah and Elizabeth to, to still be faithfully serving, even into their old age in the temple, uh, was a testimony to, to their love of the Lord. And it was a testimony to their endurance. They had waited for a really, really, really long time until the ship had sailed. Um, I mean, so pretend that, so we go back to the Christmas story. Pretend the movie ends and Ralphie didn't get the BB gun, right? So my BB gun was the Snoopy snow cone maker. Do you guys, anybody, the Snoopy snow cone maker? Yes? Children of the 80s, rise up right now. Yes. So the Snoopy snow cone maker was the device that was going to save you and, and make you the popular kid and you were gonna be able to make snow cones for all your friends and they were gonna love you. Like, you were gonna be the cool kid in town. The technology was amazing. It was a piece of plastic. Um, they've actually adapted this cutting edge technology for cheese graters now. I don't know if you go to the Olive Garden, basically it's just a copy off the Snoopy snow cone maker, you guys. It was, uh, it, you, you put ice in this thing, in, the, in a Snoopy doghouse, and the ice goes down, and the thing pushes the ice, and you turn a crank on the back, and about one ounce per three minutes comes out as you crank as hard and as fast as you possibly can to get the snow cone stuff out so that you can make a snow cone that's about this big, right? Stuff in my dreams. I mean, to have a snow cone maker in your room, right? Stack that up with like Ninja Turtles and Transformers and all that stuff. And they don't make the Snoopy snow cone maker anymore, you guys. Maybe, I mean, maybe they do. They're doing like a resurgence where they're making classic toys to prey on people who are in their 40s now or 50s and like to tug on our heartstrings and make us buy the things for our kids uh, to then keep and play with ourselves. Whatever. It's fine. My, my Red Rider BB gun was a Snoopy snow cone maker. And I did not get the Snoopy snow cone maker. And my parents are here. And it's not your fault. Uh, because I don't think I ever even told you that that was the thing that I, like, maybe it just never came up, but it was the, it was the thing I dreamed about. Uh, they don't make it anymore. For, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, they stopped making the Red Rider BB gun a long time ago. Do you remember, there's the, uh, the Santa Claus movie. I was thinking about this yesterday, when he, when he and I were talking about it, but the Santa Claus movie, the, the first one, again, not the 15th one or whatever, they're on route. Um, Tim Allen's only going to live so long, you guys, so they're going to have to stop making them eventually. But the um, long life to Tim. We're, shout out to Tim. We're on the internet, so there you go. We love It's great. Whatever. So the first movie, uh, the, 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 uh, the ex-wife and her, her new husband, uh, what are their names? Does anybody? I think the guy's name is Liam, maybe? Neil? Neil, thank you, with the sweaters, with the Cosby sweaters. And the... Um, and then the, the wife, I think her name was Laura or Warren or something like that, whatever. There's this very emotional scene, if you've seen the movie, where they're talking about, because they're the Scrooges of the movie, they're talking about when they stopped believing in Santa Claus. And it, it came down to, they wanted something, and they didn't get it. And for her, I know this, this part, for her it was mystery date. Um, she's like, it was no mystery date. And then he wanted, what did he want? He wanted an Oscar Mayer winning whistle. And he was like three or something like that. 
And they were like crying, like, oh, you stop believing in Santa Claus. It was very emotional. It was very emotional. Go watch it. It's very emotional. Um, but at the end of the movie, what happens? Happy ending for them, too. They stopped making those toys a long time ago, but magical Santa, Tim Allen, drops the present, and they get their little, he's like the, end of the movie, and he's blowing his little, his little Oscar Mayer winning whistle. It's beautiful. For Zechariah and Elizabeth, there's no mystery date. There's no Red Rider BB gun. There's no Oscar Mayer weenie whistle. There is no Snoopy snow cone machine. It's not going to happen. Because biologically, that ship has sailed, right? Like, that's not, that's not even a possibility anymore. And so they find themselves uh, day after day waking up, serving. And the life of a priest, for them to only serve in the temple uh, proper a couple of times a year, and the most special of responsibilities you had to cast lots for, which was, you can think of it like, I won't say rolling dice, that's not the right term. Drawing straws, drawing, you could say drawing straws, right? So it was, a, it was by, by chance, um, but it was seen as a way to understand God's will in this situation at the moment. Casting lots, look it up. Um, there were so many responsibilities, but the vast majority of their time would have spent serving the communities that they lived in, would have been spent teaching, maybe preaching in some cases, but instructing, caring for, loving the people around them. This was their day-to-day -day life. Most of their time was spent representing, because this was the, the dual role of a priest, was representing God to the people. But then this thing happens. It's his time to serve, and lots are cast, as they usually are, vast numbers of people, and Lot falls on Zechariah to burn incense before the Lord. The numbers work out that this would probably have only happened one time in a priest's life if they were lucky. Lucky. Would have probably only happened one time in a priest's life because once your name was in the hat, we're on week, it couldn't be in the hat again for another day. This burning of incense happened twice a day, the morning and the evening. And so this was, this was huge. Maybe this had never happened before in his entire life. Lots are cast and Zechariah gets chosen to come and to burn incense. Now that sounds hokey to most of us, honestly. Some of you may burn incense, it's fine, sorry. I'm, immediately I'm thinking about all the people that might, it's okay to burn incense, it's all right. But in this context, the significance of burning of incense was really, really powerful. The, the altar of incense was in the temple, you guys, and it wasn't actually much bigger than this. We think about like the temple in Jerusalem, we think about an altar, we think, you know, big, fancy, so it was beautiful, but it wasn't actually much bigger than this, this little podium thing right here. It's probably about that high, would have been square, overlaid with gold, made of wood, little horns on the sides. But what they would do is they would, they would put um, coals, actually from the bigger altar outside where the burnt sacrifices were offered. They would bring that and they would burn specially formulated incense, very specific details about what God wanted done here. Um, please see the sons of Aaron in the, the Old Testament for an importance gauge. The, the incense was put on and prayers were offered up by the priests that had the job that day, that had this privilege. It was really special. And what the scripture tells us is that there were a multitude of people gathered outside. Now that multitude, they take the word multitude fairly seriously. What this probably meant was that this was a high holy day or a Sabbath, it was a special day. And at the hour of incense or the hour of prayer, as it's also called, they would come, everybody would come and they would be outside of the temple because only the priests could go in. And this thing, this, this altar was before the curtain. So the temple, the inside of the temple was separated. The, the, the whole temple itself was, was called holy. But the, the 
inside section was divided into two pieces. There was a larger section when you walked in, and on the back, toward the back of the temple, inside the temple, there was a beautiful curtain tapestry. It was absolutely magnificent. It's a work of art. But this curtain separated the holy place where the priests could serve, but others really couldn't, and then the, the holiest of holy places where the Ark of the Covenant was. This was God's, the hot spot of God's presence in the world. On the planet, this was the hot spot of God's, the one creator God, his presence in the world. It was right there. And so for a priest, who maybe this was his only chance in his life, to have this honor, to walk up to this altar, feet away from the curtain that separated the holy place, which was a big deal in and of itself, from the holiest of holy places, where God's presence was. This was huge. This was very significant. And so the people gathering around outside, Zechariah would have known his lot would have been, the lot would have been cast well before he had to go in, and his family would have been there. So Elizabeth is outside. And the two, it's a very exciting moment for the two of them. It's a great privilege and an honor to be able to go in and offer incense on the golden altar and to stand before the curtain of God's presence. And the, the, as the incense went up, it would make this cloud and it would send, the, the thought was that it would send this beautiful cloud of, of, of incense, of, of aroma, of something beautiful going into, on behalf of God's people, going into the very hot spot of God's presence. And it was, it was amazing. And so a whole crowd's outside. Elizabeth's out there. Fun fact, the other folks that we're gonna talk about over the next couple of weeks really like to hang out at the temple. They were probably in the crowd. And so, lots cast, they go in, Zechariah goes in, and here's the question. We're finally getting around to the question. How are we, are we doing on time? It's, it's not been an hour yet, right? So we're, we're good. 45 minutes, it's fine. So, we, we're, we're, at the, we're, we're, in the we're at the stage now, right? The stage is set. We understand the scenery a little bit better. We understand the characters a little bit better, hopefully. If you've stayed awake this long, good job. Zechariah is chosen by Lot. He goes in. Here's the question. The question I want to I answer, the question I want to know the answer to, I fully intend to ask when I see him. What did Zechariah pray for? What were Zechariah and Elizabeth praying for in that moment? And so the easy answer is, is they were, he went in and he saw this as an opportunity to stand before Yahweh, to stand before the one creator God who could do anything. And he could have in that moment said, you know, I, I know you love us, and I know you can do anything. And I just want this one thing. My wife and I just want this one thing. And it's nothing for you, really, right? It's nothing. You can do it. Can we have a son, please? Can we have a hope? Can we have a future? Could we please? I know you can do it. He could have done that, fully plausible. The, the immediate response of the angel makes it seem that way. Here's the thing, the, the text actually gives us some hints about the kind of person Zechariah and Elizabeth, the kind of people they were. Zechariah took his priestly duties very seriously. Zechariah and Elizabeth are described as upright and lovers of God and keepers of his word, who cared about what he thought and who cared about and who loved and lived their lives serving his people. And this was a rare moment in the life of Zechariah and their family to stand before God, to not represent God to the people, which he spent most of his life doing, but it was this rare moment to, to represent all of Israel to Yahweh himself. 
And so Zechariah, I'm hard pressed to think that Zechariah, a, a serious conscientious guy who loved God's people and who loved the Lord, would have stood at the altar of incense and used that moment to ask for a thing selfishly, to ask for a miracle. I'm more inclined to think from the context of the passage that what Zechariah was praying for was for the salvation of his people. I think he was praying for God himself. And the response of the angel comes and it looks like, it looks like the angel saying, your prayer's been answered because you were asking for a kid, you're gonna get a kid. But guys, what if all those years of waiting, what if for all those years of waiting, what God actually did was used their lives and their hearts as fertile soil, as a seedbed, as the people for the right moment at the right time, just before the first domino is gonna get knocked over that would actually lead to the physical coming of the God-man on earth. At this moment, what if God used the hearts of two people who had long waited for a hope and a future for themselves, finally saw through that desire and saw that what they really needed, the real fulfillment, the real future, the real hope was actually God himself. And what if he used their hearts to pray in that moment for the salvation of his people? And that was the moment that he decided to send the angel and respond and say, Zechariah, your prayer's been heard and it's gonna be answered. Also, you're gonna have a son and his name's John. My guess is, this thing happens as you get older. The things that you, our, our hearts can go a couple of ways in this. We can long for something and we cannot get it. And we can, oh man, we can white knuckle that. We can, we can scratch and claw and try and kill ourselves and other people, physically and metaphorically as humans, to get that thing that we want. That, uh, that amount of money, that relationship, a child, a spouse, a favorable diagnosis, a new job, a way to better provide for my family, healing for X, Y, Z. We can, we can long for those things, and those can be really good things. But here's the truth, y'all. All earthly desires that we have, that can we come into contact with in our lives, those are actually invitations to look through those things and to ultimately see, like through, through a foggy mirror that we wipe, wipe the fog off of, right? To see that the real desire behind our desires is God himself. The thing that I want in a family, what Zechariah and Elizabeth would, would have wanted in a child was just that, was a hope, a future, a baby to love, uh, a family, the seeds of, of descendants to come, a, a chance to contribute to the good of the children of Israel. They would have wanted all of that, and those are really good things. But ultimately what they wanted is really found and met, all of those desires are found and met in who God himself is. He can provide those things and meet those needs in ways that nobody else can. And so, all right, so what's the, what's the application? The application, hopefully it's somewhat obvious. Think about your life and think about what desires you're wrestling with right now. What are those things? Those desires are invitations. In all the years of our waiting, because sometimes it's a new thing every week, and sometimes it's the same thing our whole life. 
And sometimes it's multiple things in various stages of longing and desiring. But in all of those things, I, I encourage you, I invite you, God, God himself, I believe, is inviting you to look beyond those desires, to look through them, and to see that he is the one that meets all of those needs and satisfies all of those longings. Jesus is going to say it himself. He's going to say it to the woman at the well. Very well-known story, Jesus. What does he say to her? He's like, hey, look, I know you're here to get water. I get it. You need water. Thing is, anybody who drinks that water, or any water really, they're going to get thirsty again. You're going to quench your thirst, but then you're going to get thirsty again. But anyone who drinks from the water that I give them, the life that comes from me, the sustaining power that comes from me, and who I am for you, that person won't thirst anymore. All those longings can be met. And nothing here is going to do that for you. That's just me. I think Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying for God himself. I think they saw through the long years of waiting, the thing that seemed impossible, like it would never happen, I think that they, I think that they had gotten to a point in their life, in their love and their faithfulness to Yahweh. I think they had gotten to a point in their life where that desire had taken a backseat. And maybe it had even been thrown out the window at some point. This distant hope that they remember a long time ago, this ache in their heart that maybe still was kind of there, a scar that had healed but I think that they had seen through it and worked through it and pushed through it. And I think that they had seen God as the answer to all of these problems. And I think that Zechariah and Elizabeth were that day offering their prayers, along with all the people gathered outside, offering their prayers to send help, send a savior, save us, make us new, bring life, bring healing, bring hope, bring a future. And God said, yeah, now's the time. And the savior's coming and the gears are turning, and you can't stop it. Nothing can stop it. It'll it'll try, but nothing can stop it. We won't even cover the rest of the story. Uh, You can go read it for yourselves. I encourage you to. It's beautiful. I just wanted to leave you with that today. Advent is a time for waiting. We're talking about waiting for God. Look at a couple of people's lives who waited maybe longer than some of us will live for the thing that they wanted so much. And it was a good thing. But God invited them to look through that good thing and to see the ultimate good thing, which was him. And he gave them that. The son was going to come as the forerunner. The forerunner was the forerunner of the God-man who was going to come and sacrifice his life on, on our behalf. Pay the price for our son. Bring new life. Bring new creation. All of that set in motion with Jesus. Look through your desires and see the thing you really want for Christmas, for everything. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time together. Uh, We wrestle with, oh man, stuff just gets thrown at us all the time. Things Things that we have to have, things that we need. And some of them are superfluous, and some of them are garbage, and we know it, and we love it anyway. And And some of them are so core to who we are, and so foundational to our life that to give up that desire to have any hope but that hope seems insane and yet you call us in the person of your son through the power of your spirit to look through all of those desires even for the good things in this life all the beauty all the wonder that you've given us 
all the time with family, all of the gifts, all of the rich gifts and blessings that you give. You call us to see through all of those things and all of the longings and all the desires to see that they can only fully and finally be met in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.